Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 43 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast with Tom Fox and my good friend, Matt Kelly. In this podcast, we take a deep dive into a compliance-related topic, and today we're going to take a deep dive into the Lindy Gas declination issued by the Department of Justice on June 16, 2017. We take a look at the facts. We take a look at the lessons to be learned by the compliance practitioner and the message that the Department of Justice is sending to companies. Matt and I both think it's a very significant decision. It certainly merits your attention and your consideration. I hope you will enjoy this podcast. We will link to the decision in the show notes so that you can um, read it. I've also uh, blogged about it, and so I'll link to that as well. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, where we take a topic and go into the weeds. And today we are going to go into the weeds on the Lindy Declination, which was uh, uh, released on July, excuse me, June 16th by the Department of Justice. So, Matt, welcome. And uh, what do you think about the Lindy Declination? Well, yeah. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here, as always. And I was... um quite intrigued to see after so much inaction uh, at the Justice Department and the Trump administration generally, we finally have a real FCPA enforcement action. Interesting in that it was not enforcement at all. Like you said, it was a declination against Lindy, which I believe is a chemical company because they got in trouble acquiring some businesses in the boron gas line of work. I have to admit, I I don't really know what boron gas is used for, but I vaguely remember that gas in high school chemistry class. Um, So I look at this declination and think this is exactly what we expected when about six months ago when the Trump administration was coming in. We thought, I certainly did, that the FCPA pilot program, if you live up to its requirements, which Lindy did, of self-disclosing, cooperating with investigation, remediating the misconduct. If you do all of those things, you are likely to get a dramatically reduced sentence or punishment or possibly even no prosecution at all. And I think that the Trump administration really doesn't want to engage in deferred prosecution agreements, not really interested in big fines unless it's really egregious conduct, that they are more than happy to decline to prosecute if you demonstrate that you have done the right thing and made an honest effort to clean things up, which is what Lindy did. Lindy probably did not even have to disclose this. They could have kept their mouth shut, but they did not. They did the right thing. And so the Trump department, Trump justice team said, uh, you know, there's not going to be a declination. I think we'll probably see much more of that in the future. I'm not opposed to it. Companies are doing the right thing. That's the goal. So declare victory and everybody moves on. You know, let's keep that uh, do the right thing as a theme throughout, but uh, let me uh, go into the somewhat convoluted facts, Matt. First of all, uh, Lindy is a company that does uh, manufactures and or produces, I should say, and then distributes industrial gases. And uh, mm-hmm. I've worked in the petrochemical industry in Houston and been around it long enough to know that that's a pretty big part of um, that process. So they're well known down here in Houston and uh, distribute lots of different gases. But they got into uh, hot water around the purchase of a company from the Republic of Georgia. And they purchased a company called uh, Spectra Gases uh, in 
October 2006. And uh, in November of 2006, the Spectra Gases Company, and interestingly, Spectra Gases is reported to be a New Jersey, and I have to assume that's uh, not the Isle of Jersey, but New Jersey, the state company. In November of 2006, Spectra Gases purchased some products and assets, uh, most importantly, something called a boron column from the National High Technology Center from the Republic of Georgia, which was a 100% state-owned and controlled entity. This um, magical boron column apparently made boron gas, which uh, made a lot of money for the company to the tune of uh, almost $10 million. But as part of this uh purchase of the assets from the National High Technology Center, Spectra Gases engaged in corruption to obtain this. So the first thing was a consulting contract that Spectra Gases gave to someone called Spectra Investors LLC, and the consulting uh, Spectra Investors was wholly owned by are largely owned by government officials who engineered the sale of the assets in the magical boron column. Also, um, the um, profits generated were split in yet another Byzantine manner so that these same corrupt officials received um, payments, uh, corrupt payments through the profits of the sale of the gases generated by the magic boron column. So all of this happened in beginning in uh, November of 2006. It continued to, I think, November 2010, when Lindy dissolved the Spectra gases and uh, indirectly and uh, assumed control of it. We're not clear from the declination, but at some point, um, Lindy discovered the corrupt conduct. Um, the only date we have was in January 10, um, around the time of the dissolution, Lindy, uh, which was said to have been prior to Lindy's discovering of the con uh, corrupt conduct. So maybe they discovered it after they dissolved it and it became part of Lindy directly. Uh, the sellers of the original uh, Spectra Gases company received a $10 million, excuse me, received an earnout. Um, as part of their uh, sale price. And Lindy uh, withdrew that earnout and put it in a reserve to uh, determine uh, after they did their internal investigation. It is not clear from the declination when, if at all, uh, Lindy self-disclosed, although we have to assume uh, they did self-disclose, but it's not clear when the self-disclosure occurred. Um, there were six factors listed in the declination as to why the department chose to close its investigation, um, including uh, a thorough and comprehensive and proactive investigation, a full cooperation with Lindy, including uh, providing all known relevant facts about individuals involved or responsible for the misconduct, the agreement, Lindy's agreement to disgorge the profits that it had received, the steps Lindy took to enhance its compliance program, and full remediation. So uh, getting back to the point you started with, which is um, Lindy did the right thing. You're absolutely correct. They did do the right thing. Uh, what we don't know, because Lindy, uh, the FCPA blog this morning reported that Lindy is not a U.S. company. It's Although it has U.S. subsidiaries, it is not a issuer in the United States and does not file public reports So in the United States. 
So we don't know what the cost to Lindy of any of these matters uh, was. Nevertheless, um, Lindy was able to secure, I, I think, a, obviously a superior result because they um, – Got a declination. It's one of now three declinations with profit disgorgement that the Department of Justice has issued. And when the Department of Justice requires profit disgorgement, it usually means there's no corresponding SEC matter where typically we see disgorgement. So uh, a fairly convoluted um, bribery scheme, but I thought a lot from my perspective, at least a lot of lessons for the compliance practitioner uh, going forward. So uh, kind of where do you see any of this? Well, I see, um, but I agree that the fact pattern is convoluted, and this is even without a very complete fact pattern, because it did was a declination, so we have a lot less information to go on. But this, this is a bizarre sort of twist and turn throughout the years sort of a case. Um, I know that there are some people in this world who will say then that this really raises some questions about, did, did Lindy need to report this at all? Because this... Uh, misconduct did happen a long time ago and possibly before the statute of limitations would um, really still have some bite. Uh, it was not Lindy per se, but inherited liability in this convoluted scheme that these guys cooked up. And when you think about would the Justice Department have found out about this on its own or could Lindy just have become aware of it, cleaned it up, brought a stop to it, not reported it? I here's my thinking about that. If you want to view FCPA compliance solely as a legal issue where the critical factors are really how does the company avoid prosecution and what is the cost benefit analysis of disclosing misconduct to two regulators? If that's your view of what FCPA compliance is, then you aren't wrong to be thinking in those terms of, you know, do we need to disclose this or not? I have two big bones of contention with that line of thought. First, it totally ignores the ethics part in ethics and compliance. And the cost-benefit analysis of disclosure, for example, um, it kind of reminds me of cases against car manufacturers years and years ago where they knew they had product defects that were causing accidents that were leaving people with horrendous injuries. But the cost of compensating those victims case by case was cheaper than fixing the flaw. So we're not going to fix the exploding gas can or anything like that. Um, that's the same sort of logic carried out in product design. And nobody would stand there and say, geez, that's great. I've got no problem with that because we're the ones driving the cars. We would find something just morally wrong with this and it wouldn't pass the smell test. Um, the other thought that comes to my mind about should you report misconduct or not and the, the, the logic that you might have saying, well, we don't need to report this because they're probably not going to find out about it. If you take that logic and apply it to personal misconduct and particularly to raising children who are prone to misconduct, and I have one myself, so I think about this an awful lot. This is where things start to break down. And I'll, I'll give you an example that has been on my mind. I'm not saying my son is engaged in either of these activities I'm about to mention. He's still a toddler. But... Take the example of children playing with matches or take a better example, maybe, of teenagers engaging in drinking after school or risky sexual behavior or anything like that. Odds are that you and I, the parent, we aren't going to find out that they're doing this. We might, but probably these kids are very clever. They'll be able to mask this misconduct they're doing. 
And so therefore, the best move from their perspective would be not to tell you that they are engaging in all this if their primary motivation is just to avoid punishment. Now, everybody listening, think about it. Is that the sort of child you would want to raise where their first default thought is, how do I avoid punishment? And therefore, don't tell mom and dad, I got drunk on Saturday, I accidentally burned down the shed across town, anything like that. If that's the child that you want, then you're okay and you can scale it up and you can also think I'm not going to disclose my FCPA misconduct because they're probably not going to catch me anyways. All right. You know, that, that's a morally cohesive view. I reject it, but you can, you're sticking it all together and I get that. Um, or on the other hand, do you want a child who strives to be a better person and adult as they go on in life and when they fail, which they will, do you want them to come and tell you about it so you can help them do a better job? Now, everybody listening, which is the kind of child you want to raise? I know which one I would like to raise. And then when you scale that thinking up to a corporation, that gets you back to the belief that voluntary disclosure of misconduct is a good thing you should seriously consider doing no matter what, no matter if the statute of limitations expired, no matter if it's inherited liability and you know these clunkers that you bought four years ago are screwing you over because you missed it in due diligence, doesn't matter. It's just on its own. Self-disclosure is a good thing. That is what ethics and compliance is about. If you don't think that way about ethics and compliance, if you think it's just a very narrow legal defense mechanism that should be subordinate to the deputy general counsel for litigation or whatever, okay, if that's your view of what ethics and compliance is, stick it over there. But if you do believe that ethics and compliance is an important part of running a good organization that should be part of the senior counsels thinking about what do we do as a company and what we're about, then what Lindy did fits with that. And I, I praise Lindy for stepping up. And I'm glad to see that the Trump administration, which I am generally very cynical about, I think they handled this very well. You know, there's no need to take Lindy to the woodshed. And they didn't. So there you go. Um, but that that's kind of where I come down on this uh, this question about self-disclosure in the age of Trump, where you might not get caught ever. What are you supposed to do? This is what you're supposed to do. So the uh, a couple of things, Matt, uh, that uh, I thought were important. The first one is the analysis and calculus that you just detailed on the decision to self-disclose in a corporation uh, would be made at, uh, I would assume, the highest levels. It would be made in conjunction with uh, outside counsel, you know, perhaps other trusted advisors as well. It's not a decision that's ever made lightly. It's not a decision that's ever made quickly. It's after mm -hmm. uh, reasoned debate. And part of that reasoning is a risk analysis. And that risk analysis is uh, separate and apart from your point on just do the right thing. That risk analysis entails what if someone finds out about it? Now, uh, things that happened in Georgia in 2006, you might assume, uh, well, no one would ever find out about it. And the examples you gave um, about perhaps teenage misconduct as well. Nevertheless, uh, there's still a fair chance uh, that things can get discovered. There's a chance that, uh, as you said, uh, someone can drop a dime and call the, uh, the Department of Justice or even the SEC. There's a chance that uh, this... Uh, uh, New Jersey company had to make a disclosure or a report in, in New Jersey. There could be uh, the uh, chance that when the money was reserved, one of the uh, uh, from the earnout uh, that was uh, 
part of the corruption payments that one of the accountants said, uh, you know, if the audit committee doesn't look at this, I'm going to go to uh, a national auditing authority with this information. There's uh, unfortunately a variety of ways that I can't even name that regulators can find out about nefarious conduct. So um, there's multiple calculations and indicia that go into every calculation, I should say. And part of that is is risk. What's the risk of, of, of being discovered? If, on the other hand, you have the real possibility that you will receive a declination, you have to give back the money that you illegally, your ill-gotten gain, and then you remediate uh, so that it doesn't happen again, and you can walk with that. I think that's uh, on the plus side of a risk analysis, a very important thing that uh, companies need to consider. And it appears that was at least part of the consideration here. Um, the other part I really want to bring out is uh, the counsel that Lindy used. Lucinda Lowe from Steptoe and Johnson was the lead lawyer on this. Uh, for those mm-hmm. who do not know her, she is one of the two or three deans of the FCPA bar. And when I mean deans, I mean the top. And she uh, has a huge reputation uh, in the FCPA community. She's been doing FCPA work since uh, the seventy or since the FCPA um, was enacted, and certainly through the eighties and nineties, uh, her reputation is spotless in this case. And if Lucinda Lowe uh, re- makes a recommendation, or her team at Steptoe and Johnson, and then they sit across the table from the Department of Justice and say, "We have made these uh, remedial steps to make sure this doesn't happen again, clean this up, and here are the facts of the people who were involved," I think that uh, really speaks. Uh, very well for the company. So having top-notch FCPA bar counsel is absolutely critical in this situation, both internally and when you're sitting across the table negotiating with the Department of Justice. So having someone like that involved uh, is uh, equally important, I think. You know, I, and I would bring up one more uh, scenario people should think about if they're wondering whether they should disclose or not. Um, let's say you decide not to disclose. First, it's a very short path from saying we're not going to disclose to, well, you know, do we really need to do all the remediation or can we just kind of make sure this doesn't happen again? And then it happens again. And then maybe sometime it is within the statute of limitations and the Justice Department does find out about it. And then they wind up finding about the first thing you knew about that you didn't disclose and you didn't really remediate it as much as you can. It's a slippery slope once you take that first step down. And, you know, if you wind up in these scenarios, which does happen, then you're really in a bad position the next time around. You know, when you've got an opportunity to come clean and get a declination, Sure, it's going to hurt. That's what coming clean is all about. But it's better to do it because you do wind up clean on the outside or on the other side of it. And, you know, you can you can have a very bad set of facts come back to haunt you next time around if you make a decision like this in a, in a more craven sort of a way. I'll put it that way. No, you're uh, absolutely groovy and you're absolutely correct. Let me just highlight a couple of things that were listed that Lindy did Um that I think are important for the compliance practitioner going forward. Uh, the first one is it's pretty clear that they met the requirements of the Yates memo because it specifically said that they reported all known relevant facts about the individuals involved and or were responsible for the misconduct. So that would seem to me to be uh, take care of the first prong of the Yates memo. They also said Lindy engaged in full remediation, including terminating and or taking discipline against the employees involved in the misconduct, 
including the Spectra executives and lower-level employees involved, terminating the uh, management agreement through which the corrupt payments were made, withholding the earnout payments attributable to the corrupt, corrupt conduct, and withholding payments due to companies owned or controlled by the corrupt Republic of Georgia officials. So for the compliance practitioners looking for the compliance um, lessons to be learned, I think they are uh, equally significant as well. And from where I sit, uh, in addition to your point on do the right thing, the point I would emphasize is you can make a comeback. Uh, As bad as these facts are, and they are bad, that the company, if they do the right thing, has a reasonable chance of making a comeback. And the Department of Justice is, I think, clearly sending a message to the compliance community and indeed the worldwide corporate community that if you take these steps, uh, we will reward you by not sanctioning you. Mm-hmm. So lots, uh, lots here. Uh, the first uh, declination, uh, really the first comment from the uh, Trump administration and uh, your point on, on doing the right thing and how the much more broad impact of compliance and compliance within a company, um, I think, really leads to uh, a determination or at least a, a showing of why Lindy did the right thing and the, and the superior results they got from it. I agree. I mean, I I like this this declination. It's a good case. It's um, it's something that sends compliance officers a message they probably want to hear. So, Matt, I previously heard you uh, opine that you wanted to see the Department of Justice put forward uh, that message, and you wanted to see a case, some cases, uh, some some public comment where the Department Just- of Justice clearly rewarding rewarded companies for doing the right thing. Is this uh, a step in the right direction for you, or does this kind of satisfy you in in that, or or how would you view it in the the Matt Kelly uh, vision? I I think it is a step in the right direction. Uh, You know, like I had said before, from time to time over the spring, uh, the people who we had at the Justice Department in the fraud section back then, uh, they were good people who a compliance officer could work with, including uh, Trevor McFadden, who is the deputy assistant AG who oversees the fraud section. Now, McFadden, of course, just as soon as I said, I think he's probably a good person, got nominated to the federal bench. So at some point he may soon leave. Then we had the head of the fraud section leave for the Robert Mueller investigation into the Trump campaign. We had Hui Chen resign or, well, part ways as a compliance counsel at the DOJ. So we still have this vacuum of leadership who can send clear, authoritative and lasting messages about how FCPA enforcement will be under the Trump administration. I'd like to see that remedied. I'd like to see you know more bodies in seats so that uh, compliance officers can understand who's on the other end of the phone when I have a case with the Justice Department. Um, so this is a step in the right direction, even as the personnel flux has increased. Um, we'll have to see more. I'd love, Jeff Sessions, if you're listening, I'd love to see how the Walmart uh, FCPA investigation might finally be resolved, because I think that would be a very telling incident as well. Um, and we can see what else comes along. But we've so far, we haven't seen anything calamitous or extreme either way, good or bad. We have seen stuff that really is very very palatable or very acceptable to the compliance community these days. After eight years of vigorous enforcement under the Obama administration, this this is something that companies can live with. 
Matt, do you think it might be a situation where the new uh, administration inside the Department of Justice is either feeling their way or trying to determine um, a coherent path going forward so that there's some period of time where they're sort of figuring out which way they want to take this? Would that be a, a fair assessment? Well, I... I think it's more driven right now by personnel turnover than anything else. And I do know that just within the last 24 hours of Tom, you and I talking on what the morning of June 21st here, I have seen that some uh, new blood is now coming into the fraud section leadership and to the Justice Department over there for these cases. Uh, but they are literally just starting. And we've had a stable of uh, prosecutors who have left. So you know, like I said, we need somebody somewhere who's going to stay in the position for some period of time. And I know there's turnover at the Justice Department, but turnover in the space of four or five months, that's that's not good turnover. You know, turnover in the space of your deputy assistant for 18 months or two years, that's, that's, that's the sort of stability that I think the private compliance community would like to see and that we don't have right now. Uh, we certainly don't have any higher ups like the assistant attorney general for the criminal division that is still tied up in the nomination process. We have a deputy attorney general who these days is spending all of his time thinking about whether he should recuse himself. I mean, like the leadership is so distracted by the investigation into the Russia allegations of misconduct that I think there's a a vacuum of guidance about what to do with the FCPA. And we've got a lot of personnel turnover right now. I think eventually both of those things will smooth over, probably the personnel thing before the Russia thing. But at the moment, we've got two big variables that leave compliance officers just kind of wondering what's going on. So we're reading these tea leaves. But this Lindy tea leaf, this is a pretty nice one to read. I agree with that. And I really like the way you opened this with uh, do the right thing. When you um, uh, put that type of analysis in with a more of a risk-based analysis and uh, in the context of an overall compliance ethos within a corporation, frankly, I don't see how you can come to uh, any other decision than the one Lindy made, and that directly led to the uh, superior result they uh, received. So uh, kudos to uh, everyone involved. Kudos to the Department of Justice. Kudos to Lindy for making the right call. Kudos to their lawyers uh, for getting them through this process, and uh, hopefully kudos for uh, the people who uh, take the lessons to be learned from Lindy to Hart and incorporate those uh, into their compliance experiences going forward, Matt. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, Matt, as always, it's been uh, way too much fun, and I look forward to seeing what next week brings that we can chat about. All right, Tom, thank you very much. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Compliance into the Weeds, and I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I hope you will rate our podcast as it would help get the word out about the only compliance-related podcast that takes a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance-related topic. Also, it would help in our rankings. If you want to reach Matt, you can reach him at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.